The, uh, as Aaron Andrew said, um, my, uh, my title is Church Multiplication Catalyst for the EFCA, and my original charge is really, and my passion that beats inside my heart is to see movements of the gospel ripple uh, throughout our cities and regions. And church planning has always been a part of those kinds of movements, but one of the things that you become quickly aware of when you work in the church planting arena is this, that if we're ever going to see a church planting movement occur, um, really underneath that we have to have a, a, a leadership multiplication explosion. Um, of leaders who are willing to, to invest and equip and be engaged in that. But if we're going to see a leader multiplication explosion, the foundation of that absolutely, positively, and completely has to be a revolution of disciple-making. One of the most dangerous things in all the world are uh, people who call themselves leaders who are not disciples of Jesus Christ first to influence others in a way that doesn't lead towards Jesus is incredibly dangerous. To multiply churches really is an expression of a need that comes about because we've multiplied disciples. We look at the pattern throughout Scripture as is, uh, Paul or somebody else would go into a region and then there would, be, would sprout a disciple-making movement and then they would gather those disciples together and begin to teach them and instruct them and put the structures in place. And a church was born because we made disciples not born to make disciples. Get the difference? A church was born because we made disciples. We don't plant them to get disciples. And so that's been my passion. And uh, towards that end, um, I want, how many of you like uh, historic fiction? Anybody in here into historic fiction? Um, let me give you a little history of reality that's true that you worship here. Uh, and that is this, that, that God created the universe and all that is in it. And on this earth, he created uh, man and woman, and he placed them in the garden, and he gave them uh, free reign, and one thing they shouldn't do was to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that's the one thing that they ended up doing. And you know that that was the introduction of sin into our reality, and sin has broken everything. But God, from the beginning of time, had a plan, an incredible, beautiful plan to redeem us and all of the creation back to himself. And it began in the person of Jesus Christ, who was God stuffed into a baby's body, which to me has always been one of the most incredible head poppers. I've got a whole series of things I call head poppers that I just, they, they like blow my mind. It's kind of like that, what's that new commercial for uh, a shopping site? And the blue, their heads explode with blue smoke. Have you seen that? Or purple? It, it's a head popper uh, that God would get stuffed into a baby's body. And and then would be absolutely perfect as he grew up. Jesus was without sin. The single most annoying sibling in all of humanity. Always right. He faced all the temptations of you and me, but he never sinned. And for that perfect life, as he gathered together a group of people that he would train and equip and pour himself into, he, he, he grew and expanded in influence to a certain extent, but his reward for all of that was to be thrown on a cross and to die. And he didn't die for himself. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Sin sort of earns death. It's, it's what the just payment for sin is. 
But Jesus had never sinned, so his death was unearned wages. It was not something he deserved. It was in, in all respects unfair except for this, that God, Jesus, being God and man, was doing it on purpose because he wanted to pay a price that I owed and that you owed. Jesus wasn't dying for his own sin. He had none. He was dying for my sin. He was dying for your sin. And he went to that cross and he died and he paid the price for sin, then rose again from the dead to demonstrate that sin does not win, that God has power and mastery over it, and to offer you and I this incredible opportunity to be reconciled to God and restored by putting our faith and trust and accepting what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. That foundation is the good news called the gospel. And on that foundation, um, we come into a series of incredible events. After Jesus rose from the dead, he walked with his disciples for a number of days. And then he ascended to heaven, where he sits at the right hand of the Father, the Bible tells us, interceding on our behalf. But before he went, he gave some marching orders to this band of people that he had been equipping and training for ministry. We have it in the Bible. It's found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. It's on the screen behind me as well. And on that verse, Jesus said, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, common sense sort of tells us that if you have been working with the group of people and you are going to now sort of depart from them and entrust to them uh, whatever you've been training them to do, that your final parting words are going to be probably right, uh, important. They're probably going to be a description of, or, or a summary of everything that you've been trying to teach them up to this point about what they're being called to do. And, and that's what we have here in the Great Commission, is called, that Jesus gave to his disciples. From here, he ascended and goes back to the right hand of the Father. Now, here's where the historic fiction jumps in. Imagine with me, if we could transport ourselves up into heaven, Jesus has given this speech to his disciples. And now he's coming back to the right hand of the Father, and all the angels and the heavenly beings are gathered there. And, and if you will, imagine with me uh, this way, that, like the throne room is, is up in the front up there in the throne that Jesus is going to sit on the right hand of the Father, and, 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 uh, and there's just like a stadium seating along this long road filled with angels that are partying like you wouldn't believe. I totally believe like you do, that in heaven there are parties, we should party like we're in heaven. And, and, they're, and they're celebrating and they're screaming, maybe they're doing the wave, you know, and and, and excited about Jesus and celebrating and, and, and worthy, worthy is the lamb and that whole thing is going on, just a cacophony of sound. And Jesus gets up in the front and he sits down in the throne, you know, and, and, and all eyes are on him. And, and I imagine that, that maybe one of the angels would lean over. Maybe it's uh, Michael, the archangel, leans over to Jesus and says, great speech down there, Jesus. Um, just can I ask you a question? Jesus maybe says, sure. Yeah, so like, you know before you died, that Peter dude and the whole deny you three times thing when the pressure was on, scary moment. Remember how like when you got arrested, everybody ran away and abandoned you? 
Yeah, you, you realize those are the same folks that you just kind of sent out to take care of things from here, right? So I'm assuming you've got a plan B. Like if they fumble the ball here and they really drop it, I assume you've got a plan B. And as far as we can tell, in all that we read in the scriptures, the answer of Jesus at that moment would have absolutely and unequivocally equivocally been what? No. There is no plan B. That this mission that I came on to do in this world, to, to live a perfect life, die and pay the price for sin, rise again and offer by faith that people could accept that and, and enter into a reconciled relationship with God has been entrusted into the hands of some very, very average people. Very capable of not carrying the mission out. But this, in my sovereignty, is the plan. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded. Go get them, guys. One of the frightening, most frightening things that I have heard in my life uh, was something that I heard, um, I don't know, I think late 90s, early 2000s, from a, a guy named, by the name of Bob Gillum, who was working for an organization called TNET, which was really helping churches to become disciple-making ministries. And he had conducted a survey of some 4,000 evangelical churches across the United States and came back as the results of his study with one of the most heartbreaking, heart-wrenching things as uh, somebody who loves Jesus could ever hear. He said, in our survey of 4,000 churches across the United States, we could find absolutely no correlation between number of years as a Christian and spiritual maturity as defined by obedience to the things that Jesus taught. None. We could find no correlation between numbers of Christians and spiritual maturity as identified by obedience to the things Jesus taught. In fact, he said, if we were to find anything that we could out of the statistics extrapolate from them, it was inversely proportional. In other words, those who were newest in Christ were most likely to take Jesus at his word and obey what was laid out in the scriptures as opposed to those that had done a long time. And that's frankly doesn't make sense. It really broke my heart. Um, over on my right here is my beautiful wife, Michelle. We've been married, for, it'll be uh, 30 years, October 11th of this year. So we were born in, we were born. <laughs> I wish we were born October 11, 1986, but it was well before then. We were married on that day. And, um, and I can still remember our wedding day, parts of it very well. And I remember uh, standing up at the altar up at front in, in holding hands with Michelle, we're facing each other and we're exchanging our vows with each other. And I remember thinking, I can't imagine being more in love with somebody than I am at this moment. But the truth is that the next 30 years of life have, have profoundly impacted the way I talk to couples in premarital counseling in a variety of fronts. Um, but one of them was this. I tell couples uh, during our counseling um, I pray it with them before we go out and do the ceremony. And then I, I think I've, for the last probably 15, 20 weddings or more, I've said it in every one of the weddings because I feel so strongly about it. 
I said this, guys, I want you to understand that today is the first day of your married life. But it's my deepest prayer for you that it is not the best day of your married life. Because I now understand 30 years into marriage that on that day that I exchanged vows with Michelle, I knew nothing about loving her compared to what I have gained across the 30 years of walking in life with her. We've had tremendous adversity and that has knit our hearts together. We've had great celebrations that has knit our hearts together. We've had everydayness of life that has knit our hearts together. But I love this woman so much more than I did 30 years ago. And that's how relationships are supposed to be. They aren't always. But that's the intention. And shouldn't it be that with Jesus? That the longer we walk with our Savior, and the more we go through life with him, the deeper and more profound our alignment with him is. Somebody came up to us after the, the first service and said, you two even kind of look alike. For which Michelle said, that's insulting. No, <laughs> she did not say that. But it's, it is, it's a little spooky, isn't it, how it kind of happens. You become like the people you're around and that you hang with all the time. It begins to, to you, you just change to become like them. And would that we become like Jesus. Disciple making is, is what God had in mind for us. But too often what we've done is we've devolved it to a class or a program. And what I want to do this morning in, in the next few minutes is not so much uh, give you a, a, a new methodology as to outline for you a way of living that I believe we could all look at our own life and, and without having to get in a new program, a new thing going, we could begin to transform and change ourselves into more of a disciple-making focus. And I, I want to start with this first by looking at that verse there. Give me back one second. I'm sorry. I'm like the world's pers worst person to have to do slides with, by the way. I don't use notes, so I can't give them anything to really go off of. And then they're supposed to guess and read my mind and switch. So forgive them. Blame me. Up here. Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. If we were all uh, Greek or Aramaic re readers in our, in our natural minds, um, we might translate this slightly different. It would be very accurate to say that really a good translation of verse 19 there is to say, therefore, as you are going, make disciples of all nations. Really, the idea of that, that, that wording there is as you go through the flow of life, and what he's saying to us is that, that in truth, disciple-making is a process. Now you can jump ahead to, uh, to the word process. It's a process of life. It's a, an, a regular flow of life. And one of the things we know about this process of disciple-making is the process of making a disciple begins before that person even believes. A guy by the name of Stephen Morell wrote a book called Wiki Church, and Stephen Morell leads one of the largest churches in the world. I don't know what their attendance is now. It's like 60,000, 80,000, might even be over 100,000 that attend this church now. It's, it's huge. And one of the fascinating things about Stephen Morell and his, his leadership team is they don't count attendance. In fact, they're often uncertain of what the attendance is at their church. But they know with great clarity and certainty how many of their people are engaged in discipleship, in being discipled. And Steve Morell made this great quote I heard him say. He said, somewhere in history, 
We took the Siamese twins of evangelism and discipleship and we separated them. And in the process, we killed them both. Isn't that a great statement? Somewhere in history, we took the the Siamese twins of evangelism and discipleship and we separated them. In the process, we killed them both. And when we look at the pattern of even how Jesus walked with his disciples, the process of making disciples begins before they believe, and it changes us when we begin to think about those that we know and love around us in our, in our workplaces, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our friendships. And, and many of them may know Jesus, many of them may not know Jesus, but in all of them, your call and my call in life is to help them take the next step towards Jesus. So my neighbor Dave, who does not yet know Jesus, uh, and, and sometimes doesn't even seem very spiritually interested, and sometimes he kind of does. But, but my prayer for him every day is to, how can I help him take the next step towards Jesus? And as he keeps walking towards Jesus, we know that the natural thing when you come into contact with Jesus is this, that you're going to be confronted with the gospel. At some point, you have to decide what you're going to do with this man. What are you going to do with Jesus? And at that moment, when you make the decision to put your trust in Jesus Christ on behalf of what he's done, that you've just completed evangelism, but really you were discipling them all the way to that moment of conversion and transformation. But the really cool part of when it's been a process like that is it doesn't change what you do with them in the everydayness of your relationship. Your process of walking towards Jesus just continues now with now and in spirit-empowered transformation in their life, and you just keep living with them the same way as you walk together towards Jesus. What if we change disciple-making from a program or a class to a process of life? It begins with those we know before they believe and carries them all the way through their process of life. That's going to put us in some messy scenarios that we have to deal with. If you move ahead to Philippians Chapter 3, we we get a picture of the messy process of disciple-making that I think is really important for us to grasp. Set in the context here in the first part of chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul has been talking about how in the past he had great confidence in himself and his own abilities, his own religiosity, all of those things. He also was keenly aware, we see in Scripture, of his failures and the things that he did wrong and the way he persecuted even his Savior. Called himself chief of sinners. But Paul said this, not that I've already obtained all this, this side of eternity, we're not perfected or already been made perfect, but one thing I do, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have yet taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. If we could think of our lives as a process of pressing on with the people that God has put in our path and being real about the fact that we stumble and we fall, you can begin disciple-making from the moment you believe you can begin the process of disciple somebody else. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have everything figured out. I got a million questions. How many of you got questions for God or questions about God? The rest of you are lying. (laughs) There's, he's too big. He's huge. He doesn't fit in our boxes. He doesn't, he doesn't do what we think he should do the way we think he should do it sometimes. And sometimes our own fears, our own doubts, our own questions, they can cause us to sort of back off. But if we recognize we're all on a journey towards Jesus together, we're in that process together, it just frees us up 
to say, I can take somebody else on the journey I'm going on as I grow towards Jesus. There's another thing that's necessary, head to the next slide, and that is establishing the kind of context that Jesus said. Jesus said, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And baptism is an incredibly powerful uh, event in the life of a, of a disciple of Jesus. Because in baptize, baptize, being baptized, we are identifying with Christ, we're dying to ourselves recognizing that Jesus Christ has saved us and rising to a new life. We no longer live for ourselves, we live for Christ. But we're also being baptized into a community, a family, a a body of believers. Uh, For the early believers in Jesus Christ to be baptized was an incredibly powerful and incredibly dangerous event Um, because it was to, to, to be identified with Jesus might mean to be ostracized from family and to be withdrawn and persecuted and those other things. But it was... It was, it was a call into this incredible context of a new family. And, and read, if you haven't, Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. Now, really, the, all of Acts chapter 2 is just this fascinating experience of, of these people who have now come into this family, and they experience incredible love and care and concern from each other that brings on both persecution but incredibly attractive transformation. And to be brought in as a disciple and to make disciples means that we create a, a context that is, is really unique and different. Flip up here. I'm going to, if those of you who are, um, go forward one more slide if you could, and there's a, a grid. Those of you who are math and engineering people are going to be excited because we're going to now draw a graph together. Um, those of you who are more artistic in orientation are going to roll your heads back in your eyes and want to pass out. But just hang with me for a second. It's okay. Imagine, if you will, a grid, excuse me, not a grill, I'm thinking about lunch, a grid from low invitation to high invitation. Low invitation is is you don't get really any access to me, into my life, into relationship. High invitation is you get to know all about me and get to the most intimate parts of my life. In in disciple making and and our relationships all fall on that grid somewhere. There are people in your life that you know at at an acquaintance level and that's all you're going to give. And then there are other people, uh, maybe a spouse, a good friend, a family member, somebody that you're, you're allowing into the, the, I hope, allowing into the deepest parts of your life. Um, in, in, so in that environment, then it, we're, going to, we're going to go horizontally with another grid, if we can bring that next one up. And we have to actually jump to a, another slide. I don't know how we did it in the first service. We got stuck here too. But imagine if we will, there we go, perfect. Uh, another grid horizontally here from low challenge to high challenge. Low challenge is I'm going to ask nothing of you, demand nothing of you. I have no expectations with regard to anything for you. High challenge is I have high expectations in challenge. I'm going I'm I'm to really drive in on your life. And on this continuum, we knew that Jesus was, was both very high invitation. He invited us, John 15, we're, in, we're told like to abide in him and be deeply rooted and connected in him. And he's also incredibly high challenge. Go ahead to the verse that's right behind there. Anybody who thinks that Jesus was in high challenge, I don't know how they get that because Jesus himself said in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. That is not a wimpy admonition. It is a high challenge. So if we put the grid back up there, keep going forward. If we put the grid up there, 
And we think about that as four quadrants. It defines four different ways we could choose to live the context of our lives. And it has a profound impact on how people around you will be changed and transformed both by you and your walk with God. If we go on the upper left corner up there, if you go forward, um, I call this a cozy or lazy relationship where we have a high invitation. We like to, to be relationally engaged with each other, but we're not going to challenge each other at all. And that's cozy, but it really doesn't transform lives very much. It's, everybody loves to be around people you love to hang with, but if everybody is, 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 is not going to have a challenge involved, not much there. Now if we go down below, how about if we, if we have a low challenge, low invitation? That's an incredibly, one more for you, yeah, that's like boring. Like, why would you even hang out with somebody who neither lets you know them nor has anything to say to you? This is, like, for me, who's an introvert and, um, and, and I, I love solitude and alone time, this, to me, is worthless relationship. Now, other people like acquaintances more than me, but I'm like, I have a hard time with small talk and just hanging out and talking about, like, the weather and stuff like that. I'm just bored instantly. Um, because there's just nothing there. It's, it's, it's maybe not lonely, but it's not very exciting. So I'd rather be lonely. Okay, go ahead <laughs> to the next one. What about if we have low invitation? I'm not going to engage or allow you into my life, but man, am I going to challenge you. I'm just going to be in your face all the time. That is an incredibly stressful environment. And I got to tell you that very rarely will people stick in that relationship either. If somebody's like only coming down on you all the time about everything you could do better and everything you need to change and you've got to be this and you've got to do that, but they're not going to engage with you in love and relationship or whatever, it's incredibly robbing. But if we go up into that upper right corner with a high invitation, high challenge, that is an incredibly empowering place to be. So, you know, Michelle and I are married, uh, coming up on, on um, 30 years. Ooh, that was dangerous. I got it, 30 years, October 11, 1986, I got it, honey. Um, the, the thing is, like I'm a Norwegian in origin, in, and I don't know if you know about Norwegians out here in Southern California, but if you watch the, the, the Vikings on the History Channel, that's my peeps. And, and, and we stuff, we don't talk about our emotions, or our feelings, we scheme, we farm, then we pen it all up, and then we go out and pillage, and kill. And then we take their stuff and we settle down again and we farm and we keep it all inside and we don't, you know. My wife is an Italian. Italians do not have unexpressed feelings. They say everything they're thinking. And so we came, yes, yes. So we came together in this, in this relationship and we built a love and, we, and, we, and we, we are high in our invitation towards each other and really high in our challenge. Like Michelle knows me better than I know me sometimes. And she gets up in my face about things she can see coming in my life, sometimes even before I see them because we're in this empowered environment. And Michelle can say things to me that if you, as somebody who doesn't know me, came up and tried to say, I would greet you with the right hand of fellowship. <laughs> that was kind of a mean thing to say. But, <laughs> but Michelle can say it because I know she loves me. That, that relationship has given her the platform to say anything she needs to say to me. And I don't always respond immediately well, but she can say anything to me. So if we're going to go on a process of disciple-making and, 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 and really understand what it means to be baptized, to become one into a family with another, and we created this empowered environment, what, in your relation, what if in your relationships, your workplaces, your friendships, wherever God has put you to the people 
that he's laid on your heart to share Jesus with, what if you invited them into a high invitation, high challenge environment where you really loved each other, but you really spoke truth into each other's lives? Amazing things begin to happen when the Spirit of God invades that kind of a place. One last piece then of our process is this, that disciple-making is intended to be action-oriented. You can go ahead to the word action however it gets you there. Sorry, I kind of was jumping ahead. Um, Francis Chan told an illustration a number of years back that was really powerful. I'm going to just apply it to my own family. Imagine my friend Joshua, my friend, my son Joshua, he's my middle son, he was our messy child. Everybody who's had a kid as a messy child. Um, always dirty. And um, earthy, and, and his room looked like a bomb would go off in it. And imagine me going to him one day and saying, Joshua, I would love, I, no, not, I would love. Joshua, clean your room. And he looks at me and says, absolutely, Dad. I come back two or three days later, and I look in his room, and it is, if anything, worse than it was before. And so I go to Josh, Josh, I said, clean your room. And he looks at me, he goes, oh, Dad. Unbelievable when you said that a couple days ago. Like, I felt the skies open. It was like a new revelation to me, clean your room. I was so excited about it. I went to school, I started telling my room, my friends at school, about room cleaning. And you know what we did? This is so amazing, Dad. We're going to meet every Tuesday morning before school to have a study about room cleaning. In fact, Dad, I was checking... If you look at the Greek word for clean, do you know what it means? It's incredible. I am so excited about this room cleaning thing. I think we got a movement of room cleaners birthing in my high school. And I'd be saying, but Josh, I just want you to clean the room. That, that disciple making in all of the movements of God has always been not so much how much we can be enamored with the ideas of it as the action of it, living into it. To simply hear what Jesus says and then move to do and to challenge each other in that direction. Let me give you very quickly here as I wrap up four ways that you can engage in that kind of action that, that, that maybe you can take to, to grab. And the first of it is this, that disciple maker, if you want to be a disciple maker, live a disciple's life yourself. Whatever you're living and modeling is you engage people in that context of high invitation, high challenge, you're going to be giving them a powerful example. That's what they're going to, to try to emulate. And you want people to follow you as you follow Jesus. So begin by, by living a disciple's life. Number two, um, look in your own life and ask yourself the question, do I have a hand forward and a hand back? A hand forward is this, that at no point in our walk as a disciple of Jesus Christ, do we ever graduate to the point where we don't need somebody else who's challenging us forward in our walk with Jesus. Having a hand forward is, is saying to somebody, hey, would you, would you grab my hand and propel me forward in my relationship with Jesus Christ? But as somebody's grabbing your hand and propelling you forward to reach back and grab somebody else and say, hey, would you come with me on the journey towards Jesus? And, and, and engaging in that, just that simple notion of who is my hand forward, who's my hand back, helps, helps us to remind we're continually growing, we're continuing to advance, but we're also bringing people with us. Number three, uh, integrate life with God and people. What if, what if there isn't who you are on Sunday or who you are in your home group or who you are when you're studying the Bible that's different than who you are in your workplace or your neighborhood or with your friends? What if it's always the same you that talks the same way and shows up with the same things? That's called authenticity. And it's powerful. 
It's powerful. I, I was super excited when you were praying for these folks here today because that's really what you were praying about. You're commissioning them to recognize that they're ministers of the gospel in the finance and business arenas, and they have an opportunity to take their walk with Jesus into that sphere of influence and make a difference there. It's an integrating and pulling together of our life. By the way, those of us who do ministry vocationally are no more ministers of the gospel than those of you who are working in whatever places or living in whatever places that you're living. We're all ministers of the gospel wherever God has placed us. It's powerful to integrate that. And finally, to bring all of that together into a sense of connection. Really, what I'm talking about is an integrated life. That we've connected all the pieces of our life together to say it's a part of making disciples. Perhaps the best living story of this that I've received in, um, at least early on in my vocational, when I was first working as a pastor, I was a vocationally in ministry and business for eight years before I was vocationally in ministry as a pastor. But I was always vocationally in ministry because wherever I was vocating, I was in ministry. Um, that was brought home for me really powerfully when I was in Alexandria, Minnesota, and uh, there was a guy by the name of Randy Neprath there who used to be a race car driver and had retired from that. And I didn't know much about his history, but the first time I met him, this is how he would, he would handle first-time introductions. So, hi, I'm Jeff. Hi, I'm Randy. Randy, I said, what do, you, what do you do? Oh, he said, oh, I'm a minister of the gospel, cleverly disguised as a Napa parts man. And across the years that I knew Randy, I discovered that that was not just words. That was a lifestyle for him. When you went into Napa Parts, you did not get to be in there very long before you knew that he loved Jesus. That it was just a part of his life. It integrated into all he does. And who Randy was at church was the same as he was when you went to visit him at Napa because your car broke down. It was the same as you were when you were at his house for dinner. He was a, a disciple maker living a life, inviting people into relationship in a context of challenge in their environment, and then acting it out in all of his life with authenticity and consistency. And it literally, I know that there are literally dozens and dozens of people who will join us in heaven one day, transformed and changed by a minister of the gospel, cleverly disguised as a Napa partsman. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Solano Community Church, for their passion to commission people into life, into the ministry that you've called them to do. And I ask God that you would continue to empower them in every way for what is before them so that they might make a difference in this city for your name's sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.